FX Medicine is your gateway to resources, research and information on the safe, evidence-based approach to practising complementary and integrative medicine. Stay current by visiting fxmedicine.com.au to register for our email newsletter and exclusive members-only content. Welcome to FX Medicine, bringing you the latest in evidence-based, integrative, functional and complementary medicine. I'm Dr. Michelle Woolhouse. FX Medicine acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia, where we live and work, and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the Elders, past and present, and extend this respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. One of the most common conditions in Australia is asthma, an inflammatory condition impacting the lives of hundreds and thousands of Australians, especially children. Although we have some well-researched treatment options, my guest today has been exploring the possibility of expanding the treatment recommendations. Due to the potentially severe impact of treatment-resistant asthma, it's at times precarious presentations and the role of lifestyle medicine, food, nutrition and exercise is often not emphasised as much as it could be. Professor Lisa Wood has spent most of her career passionate about teaching students these low-cost, multi-system effective treatments and the evidence in which they are backed. With the rise of interest in immune support, the risk of long COVID on the exacerbations of asthma and other metabolic pressures there has never been a better time to discuss the latest in innovative and holistic treatment options for asthma and other common lung conditions. Lisa has a passion in this area. She's a nutritional biochemist and registered nutritionist who has been working in the area of inflammation and nutrition for over 20 years. Welcome to FX Medicine, Lisa. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. So, Lisa, I always find it fascinating to hear someone's journey, especially when they arrive each day and work in in a niche area of their own creation. Mm. So is there a reason behind the passion that you have? Mm. Yeah, well, that's a really interesting question. I think that one of the driving forces for me was I did my PhD in cystic fibrosis and I was studying the airways and how nutrition could affect the airways in cystic fibrosis. And as I was working in that area, I came to discover that there was actually not a lot of information about nutrition in any airways disease. Mm. And particularly in the area of asthma, there was some work that came out that showed that over 50% of people who have asthma were modifying their diets to help better control their disease. But there was actually really no information as to what they might do. There were no dietary guidelines for people with asthma. And there was very little scientific evidence to show um, how you could modify your diet to help manage your disease. So seeing that there was that really big gap in knowledge there, that was really what encouraged me to develop a research program to help try and meet that need. That's amazing because we strongly connect things like cardiovascular disease 
you know, with nutrition. And asthma is such a prevalent problem. But there seems to be this little disconnect between some of the major diseases that we look at and nutrition. Why do you think that is? And we're going to get into what the role is. Yeah, so I think one of the things is that people don't intuitively think of what's happening in their lungs being related to what they eat. So when you eat food, you obviously digest food and, you know, it goes into the bloodstream. And I think people can conceptualise that that would then affect your heart, for example. And people are, are familiar with the idea of, you know, fatty foods clogging the arteries and, and leading to cardiovascular disease. But it's, I think people see it as the lungs as being more distant. But the important thing is that as soon as something enters the bloodstream, it actually is in the lungs because the lungs are highly vascularised mm. and the blood is constantly circulating through your lungs. So that's actually not true. The lungs are very close to what you're eating just through mm. the bloodstream. But I think that's one of the reasons why people don't intuitively get the link Mm, or, or educatively, like I think the mm. the fats block your arteries was almost like a public health message yet yeah. it seems that we don't yet have that public health message in terms of asthma management. Yeah, uh, no, as well. I, I'm sure that is true and it really is only very recently that we've started to have specific guidelines around healthy eating and asthma. Yeah, that's exciting. So you've researched and published multiple papers in the area of dietary fats and their impact on the inflammatory aspects of of lung health. So what do we need to know about the role of unhealthy fats and their impact on lung immunity and inflammation? Well, one of the most fascinating studies that we've done was when we recruited a group of people with asthma And we got them to consume a very unhealthy meal. So it was a meal that was high in fat, also high in other macronutrients. It was essentially two breakfast burgers and two hash browns. Wow. And a big (laughs) bowl of stoves. Well, I know. And it's funny, though, (laughs) that amongst the people that participated in this study, Probably half of them thought it was really gross and the other half thought it was great. I'm being permissioned to eat this. (laughs) Maybe we um, should research that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So so they consumed this meal and then we monitored them over four hours. Uh, Mm. And this is an example of what I was saying. You know, as soon as you eat something, it is in your lungs. It's in the bloodstream Mm. and then it's straight into the lungs. And within just four hours, we found that there airway inflammation worsened. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and airway inflammation is, of course, the underlying pathology of asthma. That's what causes asthma mm. because it's got this inflammatory pathology. And so that was the first study we did. And it was really a bit of a toe-in-the-water sort of study where we were just putting them in a really extreme situation so that we could see if there was any impact on the lungs because nothing like this had ever been done before. And Mm. once we saw that it did have that effect, we then went back and tried to refine a little bit. And so we broke it down into the different macronutrients. So that meal was very high in saturated fat. It was also very high in omega-6 polyunsaturated fat. And it was also high in simple carbohydrate. 
Yes. So we then, in our second study, follow-up study, we broke it down and we used mashed potato as a base vehicle, which is really just, you know, digested very quickly and disappears. But then we used that as the vehicle to deliver a high dose of saturated fat compared to omega-6 polyunsaturated fat compared to simple carbohydrate. And we did confirm in that study that it was the saturated fat component that was driving the increase in inflammation. And we found some really interesting results. So people often don't understand how fat could actually cause inflammation. Mm. And it's been discovered that the immune cells have receptors on their surface. And when those receptors bind with different invading pathogens, it causes those immune cells to become active and release inflammatory mediators. But what's been discovered in recent years is that actually saturated fat is able to bind to those same receptors on the surface of immune cells. And so the saturated fat initiates exactly the same response as if it was a bacteria that cell was binding to. that's so interesting. Mm. So, um, I mean, of course, we can all eat saturated fat and we do eat saturated fat and it doesn't cause major impacts eaten in moderation. But if you've got an ongoing chronic load of saturated fat, excessive saturated fat, then that can stimulate the immune system ongoing, uh, which Mm. will have detrimental effects. So that was probably the strongest evidence that we've been able to generate that's shown that this type of an unhealthy eating pattern, high in saturated fat, can cause lung inflammation and then contribute to disease. And was there an impact on the simple carbohydrates, like of the the high glycemic load, for example, Mm. using something like potato or you know, you mentioned other carbohydrates. So was yeah. was that an impact? And did that like, was it a combination effect or were we? Well, it wasn't in the study we did, it wasn't. So you could see that there was an intermediate effect, but it wasn't as strong. So when you do research, you need to be able to make a definitive conclusion about anything yes. in research. Mm. You need to have a strong enough effect that with the sample size you've used, you see a a result that becomes statistically significant. Mm. So with regards to the simple carbohydrate, you could see that there was an intermediate effect. It wasn't as strong as the saturated fat, so it wasn't significant in our trial. But there was certainly a signal there that would be worth following up um, in future studies. And also, I mean, in modern day life, I mean, they often go together. Almost always. In, in, yeah, almost, almost always. always. So um, because, it's so interesting. Because it's yeah. fat on its own isn't palatable. And as yes. I just mentioned, so when we did the study, when we looked at the isolated macronutrients, it was actually quite a hard study to design because we did right. want to separate out those macronutrients. And there's virtually no food sources that do, or no palatable food sources (laughs) that just have one of those ingredients. Mm. To make fat palatable, you invariably need some simple carbohydrates, so some potato or some sugar, um, and, you know, then you're bringing in the carbohydrates. So it is actually a very important and a true point that once you start eating high doses of of any type of dietary fat, you're usually also consuming other ingredients that might be causing problems. And what about the fats, like things like short chain fatty acids, which are known to be really beneficial for our health and that we we tend to make inside our own gut? How are they Mm. related to asthma? And, 
you know, should we be looking at how we produce those from our diet and from our gut biome? Yes, yeah, so that's another angle to the work that we've been doing. So short-chain fatty acids are completely different to the type of medium and long-chain fatty acids that we consume you know, regularly in our diet. You do get small amounts of short-chain fatty acids consumed from dietary sources, but the majority of them are actually produced in the gut. Mm. So everybody has a gut microbiome, which essentially the term gut microbiome really is just talking about the fact that your gut is inhabited by bacteria. A really interesting angle that's been coming out of nutrition research in recent years is understanding how what the gut microbiome produces affects health. And so short-chain fatty acids are part of that story. So when you consume dietary fibre, dietary fibre can exist as soluble or insoluble. And insoluble fibre is what we have become very familiar with over the years. It's things like cellulose that pass through the gastrointestinal tract intact. And they're really important. And there's been you know, public health drives around increasing fibre intake and that's related to production of feces and removal of waste from the body. So that type of insoluble fibre is very important for mm. our gut health. But soluble fibre is important for quite a different reason. So soluble mm. fibre is partially or completely digested once it gets to the large intestine where all of this bacteria resides. And it's broken down into smaller components. So things like short-chain fatty acids. And those fatty acids can then move back into the bloodstream. So some will be absorbed in the bowel. Some will be picked up and taken out of the bloodstream in the liver. But some types of those short-chain fatty acids, particularly acetate, they can move through the bloodstream and then end up in any organ throughout the body. And what the recent data has shown is that those um, short-chain fatty acids, particularly acetate, will end up in the lungs. And right. in the lungs, they can have beneficial effects around reducing inflammation. They have quite the right. opposite effect to some of those long-chain fats. They actually have anti-inflammatory actions. Mm. And do they have a role in that immunity receptor story that you mentioned before about the saturated fats? Uh, yeah, so they have multiple actions and yes, one of them is to bind to receptors, a different receptor to what long-chain short uh, saturated fats bind to, a different receptor, but still, yeah, they can operate through that pathway because that's really how our immune system operates. It's based on immune cells having receptors that detect different types of molecules Mm. and sense them as being good or bad and then responding accordingly. So there's short-chain fatty acids bind to different receptors, but they actually signal a positive response mm. and production of anti-inflammatory compounds. So, you know, what we eat, obviously, you know, the amount of saturated fat that we're eating, the amount of, I guess, you know, simple starches and glucose and, and fiber is really important. What is the role of things like exogenous probiotics or prebiotics in this story of immunity and inflammation and, and lung health? 
Yeah, and we don't really have a good answer to that yet. So in the early days of that field of, of people consuming probiotics, there was a lot of poor quality products that were on the market that actually mm. didn't provide any benefit at all because by the time they reached the large intestine, they had been destroyed, the proteins denatured, the bacteria destroyed because of the digestion process. But there are a lot of probiotics now. It, the field has really developed and, and yeah. they're being manufactured in a, a much more suitable way so that they actually are coated and, and survive their transport through the stomach and the small intestine and, and arrive in the bowel intact. But having said that, there's still not a huge amount of evidence to say that they are actually providing benefit. So it's really mixed. Uh, you know, some people would really advocate for the use of probiotics. Others would say they're not particularly useful. And, and the scientific literature is, you know, really quite mixed. Mm. What um, there seems to be more strong support for is prebiotics. So a yep. prebiotic is something that actually is converted into beneficial products once it arrives in the large intestine. So We've done some work with one type of prebiotic, which is inulin. And inulin is a type of soluble fibre. And most soluble fibres are prebiotics. They yes. um, are digested, they make their way through to the large intestine, and then they're broken down to produce these beneficial compounds like short-chain fatty acids. But they also, and a really important feature of a prebiotic is that once it reaches the large intestine, it changes the composition of the bacteria in the large intestine. So they promote the growth of beneficial bacteria and they can suppress the growth of unhelpful bacteria. And so they sort of they have a dual benefit of improving the gut microbiome profile, but then also being a fuel for, you know, the production of these beneficial compounds. And what about things like essential fats, like, you know, omega-3 and omega-6s and GLA? you know, using yeah. in things like asthma. What's the research telling us about that? Because I know historically, you know, in the naturopathic world and integrative medicine world, you know, we've often used a lot of omega-3s and used mm. those oils in a particularly anti-inflammatory way. Yeah. So it's really interesting. So omega-3 fatty acids, I guess as a starting point, I'd say they absolutely wouldn't be damaging for you to use omega-3 fatty acids. And certainly there's some diseases and conditions where there's a lot of evidence for benefit to the point where there's recommended intakes. So, you know, for a cardiovascular disease, for example, rheumatoid mm. arthritis, there's also quite a lot of strong supportive evidence. So, that you know, they're definitely not a negative thing. And, you know, for anyone taking omega-3 fatty acids, they're quite likely to be beneficial on some level because yes. of their anti-inflammatory properties. But if you're asking about specific evidence in asthma, there really isn't a lot there yet. So mm -hmm. there's been some systematic reviews, Cochrane reviews that have looked at omega-3s for fatty acids and haven't been able to say that there's conclusive benefit from using omega-3 fatty acids, but at the same time, they can't say that they're definitely not helpful. It really comes down to there hasn't been enough research to test that question properly. 
so I, my advice would be yes we can't recommend it as a you know as a definite approach to improve disease mm. but quite likely that may come in the future Okay, well, that's something to to look out for. And Mm. there's a bit of talk around the lung biome and other biomes like the vaginal biome and skin biome and all of these other kind of biomes to kind of create this holistic picture. What is your opinion about the lung biome and the gut biome and how they influence each other or or what's Mm. what's the latest there? So... my view on the literature is they don't necessarily talk to each other at all and mm. that's not necessarily a bad thing or a good thing. The lung biome, in, in people with respiratory disease, it's very much influenced by not just exposures but also medications that people are using. What I think is the most interesting development in this area is the way that the gut microbiome influences activities in the lung. So... Mm. There's a link between gut disease and lung disease. And so, for example, people with COPD, a very significant lung disease, have a higher prevalence of inflammatory bowel disease. And there's lots of different bits of evidence that link lung disease and gut disease. What I think is really interesting is how you can modulate the gut microbiome to influence lung disease. So, Mm. again, there's evidence to say that, but mostly from mouse models at the moment, not a lot of human work, mostly from mouse models, that shows that if you change the gut microbiome, then you can affect the disease outcomes for COPD. Mm. And we've actually got a large NHMRC synergy grant at the moment where we're looking at this exact question to understand that process in humans and to test some of the different strategies that might be relevant in humans. And it's quite likely that in asthma there will be similar sort of ability to influence asthma by manipulating the gut microbiome. But it's very early phases for those studies now and we don't really understand very well how you might influence the gut biome and then what would be the best strategy for disease management. Mm. But that evidence is starting to come out. It's really interesting, really interesting field. Yeah. And what about things like pollution? Because often, you know, we talk when we're talking asthma about minimising air pollution. We know that that's a significant factor if you live near a, you know, major road or there's chlorinated pools and the impact of that. So, you know, do we need to consider that from your understanding of the role of, I guess, holistic nutritional health because of yeah. the impact? Is that yeah. is that affecting nutrition or is it is it a toxin on its own or do we know the relationship there? Yeah, so no, look, definitely, definitely air pollution is a really important trigger of airways disease, as you would expect, because you breathe in air pollution and the first site at which it enters the body is the lungs. Mm. And so it does trigger and exacerbate any lung problems that a person already has. There's lots of data around showing that areas that have high levels of air pollution asthma is worse, people's chances of having an asthma attack are worsened and those effects are even more important in children. In Australia, we're very fortunate that we don't have very high levels of air pollution and so for that reason, a lot of the work 
where this has been shown comes from heavily populated cities in the US. And and we we just don't have the levels of air pollution that they have. But it certainly is important and for people in specific situations in Australia. As a population, we don't have high levels of exposure. But, you know, if people would be living in the main roads, for example, then they may be impacted. And so it certainly is something to consider. That environmental influence, it certainly does worsen people's airways disease. And there's a bit of evidence that's been generated that shows that by improving nutrition, that can provide a strategy to protect against the damaging effects of air pollution. Yeah. So high antioxidant diets, high fruit and vegetable diets mm. have been shown to be protective. So that certainly is if someone's in, I mean, because sometimes effects of the environment aren't necessarily within an individual's control to eliminate potential exposure. So having a dietary approach to protecting against the problem is really helpful. Absolutely. It's so empowering too because often it feels a bit disempowering when you've got so much pollution that's out of your mm. control and so it's yep. nice to kind of be able to switch the locus of locus of influence back to, to oneself. Yeah. And with the hygiene hypothesis, which has obviously been alive and well for a long time, is that still something that we really consider in terms of long-term asthma risk or or incidence or have we moved on from from the hygiene hypothesis per se so the hygiene hypothesis i think we've not necessarily moved on from it but i think we've evolved our thinking so mm. really what we're talking about with the hygiene hypothesis i think we understand now that one of the really important aspects or or why the hygiene hypothesis might be relevant for health. It comes back to this idea about microbiomes and healthy bacteria and avoiding situations where you're eliminating healthy bacteria from the body. Mm. So so I think that is more the focus now um, rather than worrying about people being clean and healthy. The focus has shifted to more around maintaining the integrity of the bacteria that are naturally present in the body and yeah. not even just maintain the integrity but um, if possible them promoting respecting it. them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Promoting I it. mean, it's yeah. kind of a completely different way of thinking because we used to be, you know, so antibacterial really mm. um, yeah. with chlorine and, and cleaning products and yeah. um, antiseptics and antibiotics, et cetera, yeah. so having a bit more of a respect for it. Yeah, mm. and really cha- changing our attitude around around bacteria. Um, mm. So when the hygiene hypothesis was was generated some what twenty plus years ago, yeah, we just did not understand bacteria in the way we knew that there was something going on. That you know, if we wipe out wipe out bacteria, it can actually make a disease like asthma worse. But at that point in time, we didn't really understand why but now yeah as you say having this healthy respect for bacteria uh, and the role that it plays in homeostasis of the human body I think that that's really the focus now yeah and it comes into like I mean I love the fact that you know nutrition I think is almost like and the gut biome allows us to look holistically at everything to understand Mm. how the dots all interconnect And I think another area of sort of holism is exercise, obviously, and you've got a particular Mm. interest in that in your work. Tell us, 
because you study, you know, elite athletes in some regard, Mm. what do we understand about exercise, particularly for Mm. asthma sufferers and and disease modification? Like, is this first-line treatment for asthma? I mean, what do we need to know in terms of an exercise prescription as practitioners? What's the latest? Well, so for asthma, I think probably one of the most important messages is that people with asthma can exercise safely. Mm. A lot of people with asthma are concerned about exercising because they might get exercise-induced bronchoconstriction. So mm-hmm. another way of saying that is that some people with asthma, when they exercise, they that can induce an asthma attack. Yes. Um, but that can be managed by pre-medicating with Ventolin. So Ventolin's used to relax the airways so that when somebody does exercise, it doesn't cause the airways to become restricted. So that's one important message that, you know, you can manage your asthma and and be able to exercise. In terms of whether or not it's a treatment for asthma, I think that's probably going a little bit too far with the knowledge that we currently have. So yes, you can exercise safely, but then what? how could it improve your asthma? There's a growing body of evidence that says that moderate exercise can reduce airway inflammation. So there's a particular type of cell in the lungs called an eosinophil, and those cells have been very strongly linked to causing inflammation in the lungs that worsens asthma. But there's evidence now that shows that moderate exercise can reduce those cells and so you're less susceptible to inflammation. Mm. If you go too far and vigorous, intense exercise, it seems to have the opposite effect. So there's a window of, you know, moderate intensity exercise where you get benefit, but if you increase intensity, it actually has a negative effect. So this is all fairly new information and we're refining our understanding of exercise. Mm. But, yes, certainly light to moderate exercise is only going to be beneficial. And Mm. then, yeah, we're still really trying to understand at what point people need to take care because it would worsen their asthma. Yeah, or is it or act as a stressor, which then mm. impacts asthma risk. So reading your research, I was fascinated by your kind of intention into treatment resistant asthma, which is obviously a big problem and particularly kind of frightening for people that have got treatment resistant asthma. What for example, what's the role of nutrition in the relationship to the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of, say, Ventolin? Mm. Tell us about that. So The strongest data that we've got that shows an interdependence of medications and nutrition, the strongest data we have is in relation to the saturated fat. So the study I described before where Mm. we gave people the high saturated fat meal and then monitored their airways for four hours I mentioned the effect on inflammation, but it also had an effect on people's response to their Ventolin. So Ventolin is a bronchodilator. It's used to, as we've just discussed, it's used to prevent exercise-induced asthma, but it's also used just in everyday situations where people feel their airways are constricting. Ventolin is used as a very quick-acting relief 
therapy that's mm. able to relax the airways. And so that's really important as a tool for people with asthma to be able to use their Ventolin and get that immediate relief. So our study where we gave people the high-fat meal, their Ventolin worked initially, but it wore off very quickly. So Ventolin should last for four to six hours, right. the effects of the Ventolin. But when people had had a high-saturated fat meal, it wore off after a couple of hours. And so oh, that's so really problematic because it means mm. that people are having less protection against that acute episode that they might be experiencing. Yeah, so that's, that's right. a really important advice that we've been promoting to people with asthma to, you know, if you're in a situation where you need your Ventolin, then avoiding high doses of saturated fat is a really important strategy. Mm. And what about the impact of obesity on steroid-resistant asthma? I know that you've got some research mm. on actual body habitus and body fat. Yeah. Obesity complicates the management of asthma. So if you're obese, then it means that you're more likely to have worse symptoms, you're more likely to have an asthma attack, medications don't work as effectively, quality of life is decreased because your asthma is really worse in every way. Mm. And so, you know, it's really problematic. And the other thing is if you're obese, you're more likely to have steroid-resistant asthma. So steroids are the way that asthma is usually managed and it's the, you know, the mainstay of asthma therapy is corticosteroids. So they might be inhaled corticosteroids. So people use a puffer of inhaled corticosteroids or in worse cases, more severe cases, people might use oral corticosteroids, but they are the main form of treatment for asthma. If you're obese, then that tends to make steroids less effective. Right. And so that's important information. And so some people would just say, well, that's easy. We know the solution to obesity. You just get people to lose weight. And if people do lose weight, then their asthma does improve. But we also know that it's not that simple to just tell people to lose weight. So we are working on strategies, different types of medications that might be able to be used to help manage obese people better. And it's not very well developed at this stage. A lot of work's being done to try and come up with better medications that can be used to manage obesity. And we also are running a trial in our um, centre at the moment where we're trying to come up with lifestyle strategies that can also help. So assisting people in their weight loss journey, tailoring weight loss strategies, tailoring exercise strategies, so that there's a package of tools that people can use that are tailored to their own individual needs and their preferences that will enable them to be successful with their weight loss. So we haven't given up on that as a strategy. We do think that's an ideal strategy to actually manage the problem of obesity mm. rather than just using another medication. And that, of course, you know, has benefits not just for their asthma but also for a oh, range of other diseases, disease, etc. Yeah. So we what haven't about, given on that as a strategy, but, yeah, there's there's a lot of work to be done there. 
Yes, a big challenging area, isn't it? I know that actually you you dig down deeply into the the role of obesity and the role of the adipocytes and the role of the inflammation. Like what do we need to know as practitioners in that realm to help us really understand the pathophysiology of obesity and how that relates to asthma? Well, obesity, we've been trying to understand the physiological effects of obesity so there's a bit of an attitude at the moment that, you know, people who are obese should embrace their bodies and love their bodies and they absolutely should. But what we've been focusing on in the lab is really understanding it's it's not just about appearances, it's about what's actually happening to the body when somebody's obese. So when somebody gains weight, the tissue, the adipose tissue that is there to store fat, it changes its function. So it's not just a fat storage tissue. It turns into a very inflammatory tissue. So the adipocytes become engorged with triglycerides and they reach a point, a tipping point where that actually sends danger signals and cells start moving, inflammatory cells, immune cells start to move into that tissue. They become active and start releasing these inflammatory mediators. And because obesity isn't a passing thing, it's there day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out, that chronic release of inflammatory mediators from the adipose tissue starts to damage different organs in the body. So Mm. it does contribute to just about every chronic lifestyle disease that you can think of. It's worsened because the adipose tissue is promoting the production of these inflammatory mediators, which then damage the different organs. So I think that it's really important to remember when you said, you know, advice as practitioners, I think it's really important to remember that obesity is a very complex condition and there's psychological aspects to it but Mm. there's also there's also physiological aspects of obesity that we can't forget about and so we need to keep pushing for people to try and reach and maintain a healthy weight because Mm. that will prevent these secondary effects of obesity where you start developing diseases you know such as cardiovascular disease, diabetes, but also something like asthma. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating that because we often miss out on that lung component, don't we? And mm. you you started out your research career looking at cystic fibrosis and obviously you found there was a connection between, you know, nutrition and and that's a really unique disease with a, a really interesting kind of um, lung and gut interface. And then sort of moved on to asthma but you mentioned a little bit about COPD. Is there other things about like, you know, because in, in general practice, we see a lot of chronic lung, um, chronic bronchitis, COPD, emphysema, or even, you know, a mixture of all of that. Mm-hmm. How are you extrapolating that information in terms of overall or holistic lung health to, mm-hmm. to conditions such as that? And, and are we moving into that space? So, well, once they're all different diseases which you list there, they all have a similarity in the underlying pathology. So they all involve inflammation. 
And you can even extend it beyond those lung diseases because not just those diseases that you've mentioned, but also things like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, some cancers, they all have this underlying inflammatory pathology. Mm. So the dietary strategies that we've been studying in asthma are essentially their generalised approaches to reducing inflammation in the body. And the, the source of the inflammation might be different. So, you know, obesity is a source of inflammation, but so is exposure to air pollution. So they're two different triggers, but they are all causing inflammation. And so the key strategies that we've been able to identify for asthma are increasing fruit and vegetable intake, which gives you a high antioxidant intake, a high fibre intake, also avoidance of high saturated fat foods. They're some of the key strategies we've identified for asthma, but they all target inflammation. And so they're Mm. all strategies that are relevant to those other lung diseases that you mentioned, as well as other lifestyle diseases, you know, such as cardiovascular diseases and diabetes. So none of the strategies are really sort of earth shattering. Oh, gee, I didn't know fruit and vegetables were good for me. (laughs) But what we've been doing is really gathering the evidence to say, well, yes, but did you know that they're not just good for you as a generalized approach to eating? They are actually specific mechanisms by which they will help you manage your asthma. And I think mm. that's really what we've been doing, not identifying things that are earth shattering and new, but linking those strategies to uh, disease management in asthma so that people can understand and be motivated to mm. to make those changes to their diet. And and that's COPD right. certainly like there's there's a lot of evidence around COPD and, and using those strategies in COPD once again, to reduce the lung inflammation. Mm, Absolutely. Well, it's such an exciting space. And I think, you know, as much as, as you say, like it's not, it's not like we didn't know the power of fruit and vegetables prior to your research, but more actually creating the narrative and the story so that practitioners can really support their patients in delivering that message early on in their asthma journey. And And early on in... Yeah, That's right. Because Emphasise I mean, it, prioritise it, really make it a very important message. And most mm. practitioners that are seeing these patients, they've got multiple problems and, you know, there's only a limited window of time to actually spend with them to talk about strategies, um, you know, to manage their health. But what we're really hoping is that people will see this evidence and say, okay, well, I do need to get make a chance to talk mm. about my patient's weight problem or we do need to make a chance to talk about you know what are you eating are you eating enough fruit and vegetables because it's not just something that should be pushed aside it really is it should be very central to managing their health yeah absolutely oh what a wonderful message thank you so much professor lisa wood um, for coming on the show today and discussing lifestyle medicine and lung health and and really not only the opportunities for treatment but prevention and how everything interconnects and i think from a practitioner's perspective some of your research has really i guess embedded the confidence to really promote and emphasize and um, and push forward the narrative of how important lifestyle is for uh, for chronic lung conditions and what a difference it can make so i know that you're doing the most amazing work in this space and it's so important and very appreciative as a community so thank you so much for coming on the show thanks for having me 
Thank you everyone for listening today. Don't forget that you can find all the show notes, transcripts and other resources from today's episode on the FX Medicine website. I'm Dr. Michelle Woolhouse and thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. FX Medicine is your gateway to resources, research, and information on the safe, evidence-based approach to practicing complementary and integrative medicine. Stay current by visiting fxmedicine.com.au to register for our email newsletter and exclusive members-only content.